What does motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. One time I did this commercial and I was going to be a featured extra and they told me that I was going to get paid three, $350 for a 12 hour day. And I was like, great, I'm there. And I got there and I found out all the guys were getting paid a thousand dollars. From ABC, it's no limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's show, a YouTube video helped this comedian land a coveted spot on SNL. Now the Texas native has done just about every job you can in the entertainment industry. But it wasn't until Noelle Wells took a giant leap writing, starring, and directing her own film, Mr. Roosevelt, which, by the way, got a perfect score on Rotten Tomatoes, that Noelle found her true passion. Sometimes the hardest thing about taking that plunge is admitting to yourself what you care about the most. Noelle Wells, welcome to No Limits. Hi. It's great to see you. It's nice to see you. <laughs> Thank you for coming in. Um, and you have had quite the year. Uh, Mr. Roosevelt, a film you wrote, directed, and starred in. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> uh, loved you on SNL. Loved you in Master of None. You are, you're just doing so many things all at once. It seemed, well, they happened in a cascading sort of timeline, but the things this year kind of have come out and it looks like I've been doing a lot of things at once. Or maybe I have been. I don't know. <laughs> I get I did write and direct and star movie. I did do that all at once. I did do that all at once. <laughs> when you were a kid, if someone told you that was all going to happen, would that have been the dream come true? Yeah, I think making mov- movies, yes, definitely. Um, but it was something that I never truly admitted to myself until fairly recently. Um, you Why know, is that? I don't know. I think because I didn't think that somebody like me could do it or, you know, it just seems like such an insurmountable um, thing. You know, there's so much that goes into making a film. You have to hire all these people. You have to get money. Um, you have to write a script. It's it's a huge, genuinely a huge undertaking. And while I think I knew deep down inside I was capable of doing it, you know, life and circumstances get in the way and knock you down and make you feel like you can't do it. So the fact that... Um, it happened. I mean, I got to give myself some credit. <laughs> I think you absolutely should. What's the hardest part of the whole thing? Is it is it the money part? Is it getting people on board? Is it the script writing part? For me, it was script writing because I have I, I have I have lots of ideas all the time. I'm being bombarded with all these ideas that I'm very excited about, and I and I get going on, and I can see it all in my head, and I can't wait to direct it, and I, I'm like, oh, and that actor could play this part. Um, but if you don't write it down, nobody else knows what's going on. <laughs> And um, so from and for whatever reason, I have a, a resistance to writing. And I think because it's hard, it's hard to do it. It is. Yeah. So that's the hardest part. And then once it's down, then you got to get it good. And um, how many iterations in- does it take to get from the original idea to the perfect one? I mean, this film went through years of iterations because I had never written a screenplay before. And it's a it's a 
it's a whole thing to wrap your mind around sort of the structuring of a film and the pacing of a film. And um, I started writing the character when I was in college, uh, scenes for her, but I always had this character in my mind. And so as I had more life experiences or different things were happening to me, I was changing scenes, uh, changing the reason why she was going back to see her ex-boyfriend, changing all the circumstances. In Austin. In you Austin. grew up in Texas. I, I grew up in Texas. I went to college there. Um, I, I studied radio TV film in college and even then didn't admit that I wanted to be a director, even though everything I was doing, I was like taking directing classes and <laughs> taking uh, production classes and um but, you know, when people ask me what I wanted to do, I would just be like, oh, I don't know. I guess I'm like, I'll be an editor or something. <laughs> and I did do that for a while. I edited um, when I first moved to L.A. That was how I made money. And um, I don't like it. So I was like, what do I really want <laughs> to do? What do you not like about editing? Um, I didn't like being so alone. I didn't um, I don't like being in front of a computer for long periods of time. And I think. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I didn't like that I was uh, making other people's projects for them or mm-hmm. ma- like making them work when I could be just working on my own stuff. And they're giving you the ideas and saying execute on this idea as opposed to you having the vision. Yeah, because I, I think that um, I mean, editors that are really good and that help um, they they put their mark on projects. And so they really are storytellers as well as the storyteller creating the film. But for me, because I had so many of my own ideas that I would rather be doing, it was just kind of painful for me. <laughs> When you that sounds, pre- does that sound super obnoxious? I no, <laughs> I, I totally I, I appreciate it as somebody if you moved there with somewhat of a vision for yourself and what you wanted to do, you start to feel like you're not living up to your full potential when you're living out what someone else's idea is. And especially when you feel editing wasn't the thing, like if editing was your thing, if that's what you went there to do. Yeah. Then you just want to keep doing more and more of it and get more and more in in the weeds and really get in it. Right. Yeah. But like you wanted to do something else. Yeah. So when you first got to L.A. or Hollywood, what did you tell people in Texas? I'm moving to Hollywood. N- no, I just very <laughs> demurely was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move to L.A. I don't know. It's stupid. <laughs> I thought people would be like. Ew, why Los Angeles? But everybody was actually genuinely supportive, which I found surprising. That's because, great. Because, um, you know, I think Texas, California, there's a, there's a little bit, you know, you can, um, I don't know, people have like a, an idea of what Los Angeles is like. And weirdly, everybody was like, oh, that that's great. Like, I, good luck. <laughs> so you get there and you're doing your editing. How much of a surprise, how much of the unexpected was it to be there in the first place? I moved around a lot as a kid, so I'm really good at wherever I'm at. I just sort of operate. Um, The biggest surprise for me about Los Angeles or living in California is that um, I stopped being sick. I had really bad allergies in Texas and just thought that that was my life or I was going to, that was how my whole existence was going to be. Then moved to LA and I suddenly was happy and could breathe. And, um, so my baseline happiness just went up. Um, and it was just sort of business as usual and everything's kind of moved to the internet. So it's almost like I was then in Los Angeles, but the scene, especially comedically or people my age group, they had, they were all focusing online and what you could create online. And you were doing that yourself with YouTube videos, yeah. which is so smart. I, I talked to Issa Rae a while ago, and she said to me that there were people around her who said not to create the YouTube videos, that it yeah. was... Did you get that too? Well, no. I think, though, but the problem that I faced was that people were... It's like 
people were like, oh, you're making YouTube videos. And you're like, well, no, I'm a creator and I'm putting this on a platform. Um, so there, I understand maybe why people were warning her not to. But I think when you are a creative person, your creative voice will sort of rise out of whatever people's ideas are about what the Internet is. So you're putting videos on YouTube. Is that ultimately how you, you got discovered by SNL? Well, um, one of my videos, uh, my man, the woman who became my manager, Kirsten Ames, she found a video of me online and she, and so I did get discovered from a video that I actually didn't want to leave online. I, I made this audition for Saturday Night Live while I was in Austin, um, and, uploaded it and it was somebody told or I had an agent at the time that said don't worry we sent it to SNL and I uploaded it to show to post on Facebook to show my friends and family to be like look I this is kind of what I'm trying to do with my life and I really fully planned on taking it offline after showing people and everybody was like leave it up and I remember at the time it had 700 views and I was like it has 700 views that's insane I totally forgot about it some a blog picked it up um and it got like over 100,000 views. And that was insane. And then my manager found it. And so she so that kind of started my journey into like a, a legitimate career, because once you have somebody who's representing you um, and that sense, you you know, I'm still putting things online, but she can get you um, other opportunities like an actual SNL audition. <laughs> How much hustling is there? In those early days. All hustle. I mean, what does it even look like? Walk us through it. Are you going to events? Are you, how do you even find out about this stuff? How do you find out that there's an audition for something you want to do? Well, you, you get agents who submit you for projects. So there's like a commercial agent. There's a theatrical agent, which is like for movies and TV um, and voiceover agents. But it's hard to get those jobs if you're, if they don't know who you are, even those auditions, if they don't know who you are or um, they've never seen you before because casting directors decide who they're going to call him. So in the meantime, while you're being submitted for these projects and every once in a while getting an audition, um, especially for comedy people, you're writing your own projects. I worked, um, I was at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles and I was on a sketch team there. So we put on a monthly show. So you're doing that. Um, I was creating my own videos, uh, helping my friends out with their projects. Um, you know, I, I like operated boom mic for my pro- my friend's web series. And so like, if you look at my IMDb at like all the different jobs I'm credited with, it's like kind of insane, <laughs> all the different things that I've done, but that's kind of what you do. We're all, you're all sort of there figuring out your voice. Um, and you're making money by doing the editing and that's I'm, how you're paying your bills. Yes. I'm editing videos for online websites. Like I, I, I um, edited videos for cracked.com, which mm-hmm. is, um, it was a comedy site, um, that we're making videos and I was editing them and, um, and then some every once in a while I'd like book something. So I would make just enough money. One time I did a commercial that, um, oh man, this make this actually makes me very mad. But one time I did this commercial, um, and I was going to be a featured extra and I was so, de- I just needed money so badly that I was like, of course and it was non-union. And they told me that I was going to get paid three, $350 for a 12 hour day. And I was like, great, I'm there. And I got there and I found out, or I, I saw, so they have all these other featured extras and they're all guys and all the guys were getting paid a thousand dollars. And what? of course, and me, I'm not the sort of person that's going to like stand by. So then I called everybody and I was like, Hey, this is really messed up. And I called and everybody was like, okay, we'll see what we can do. And then they made this deal with the production where they're like, okay, if she gets a line in the commercial, we'll pay her a thousand dollars. And 
everybody was like, you can walk away if you want to and we'll support you. But I really needed the $350. So I stayed, but I wish I had left just to stand up for myself. <laughs> that's, but that's what you that's have to outrageous do. Outrageous to I know. me, though. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, there's no reason for the disparity in the first place on any level. No level. It made no sense. It was in this so case, ridiculous. it's just totally insane. It's yeah. a bunch of. I'm sorry, but no names at this point, right? No, none people of, we're all non who, we're all working non union, so <laughs> they could just get away with it. <laughs> that is unbelievable. So that's like, do you see that all the time? I mean, outside of that experience, have you experienced that elsewhere here's too? Here's what I kind of notice. <laughs> um, yeah, my value. Um, it's very strange. It's like I, despite all the things that I've done and all the shows that I've been on, um, the the way that certain it's like certain people like lo- like if you're trying to fight for m- more money or like to have a certain level like in like in credits or something it's this whole system that will that shuts down women faster than it does men or how does that why does that happen you you almost said lawyers so are we talking about the lawyers and the agents just say no earlier to women it's yeah so it'll be like lawyers on one end or there's this flip side of it where agents that are representing males can fight for their men longer because they're not, you know, and so they can do more for their guys. And so a tough agent, I, I think the tables hopefully are, are changing, but I, I would just see, you know, time after time, how um, like a male, some, some man would bully in either direction to where then to keep the peace or to not lose the job. I kind of have to settle for something that I don't, you know, that I know isn't exactly fair given my credentials or really why something is happening. A lot of it's because of me. And you're being asked to take the high road. I, that is, isn't that what being a woman's all about? <laughs> but yeah, you have to, you have to make these sort of sacrifices and, uh, um, and then it's just a sort of navigating and be like, okay, well, then next time I won't work with that person or next time I'm going to make sure at the beginning of the con- contractual period that I have very explicit things about what, you know, mm-hmm. I will hold standards that I, I learned from. Like just when I did that commercial, I was like, I'm never going to do that to myself again. And the ironic thing with that, that commercial was it aired for two years on national television. And um, what kind of. Can you tell us it was what like kind a, of it was commercial like, it was? First of all, it was a gambling commercial. It was like for online for online sports gambling. It's just everything was Were you sitting at a at a at a, at a like poker machine or something no, hitting it the was, button? It was it was just like a group of people going through a museum of people of like these statues of men that had won all this money. It was the whole thing bizarre. I, the whole thing really genuinely I I was compromising. I compromised myself a whole lot and then <laughs> and then of course of all the things that I booked before I got on television, that was the thing as a, you know, on TV, not commercials, but that was the thing that aired for two years. And it was airing after SNL, after I got let go from SNL. And so people were like, oh, that's so sad. Noelle is in a commercial where she has no line. <laughs> Just oh, she's on hard times. It was very funny. <laughs> wow. The, I mean, you really do put yourself out there as an actor. You, you really do. Yeah, I don't really know why I do it to myself. I don't really like the attention, but I'm still doing it. <laughs> well, I want to get to that attention part, and we can talk about that in the context of Mr. Roosevelt as well. Have you along the way ever thought, maybe this isn't for me, maybe this all of this struggle isn't really worth it? Um, every day, 
I was really? just saying earlier, I was like, maybe I'll just go into the woods and become a children's uh, book author and just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, um, all the time. <laughs> but the thing, the reason why I'm doing it is because the second I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. Oh, but I have this great idea for a movie or mm-hmm. I have this character or like I want to talk about this. What do you prefer? Is it is it acting? Is it directing? Can you say I like one better than the other at this point? I do like directing a lot because you get to have all of the worlds. I get to make decisions about how a whole thing gets shaped. Um, I I really like bringing the best out of people. And um, I one of my favorite things about the movie is that everybody really likes the actors in it. And they think that, you know, the, the performances, everybody's like really impressed by them. And that makes me feel that makes me feel like a proud mom where I get to make other people look good and Get, they get to do the things that they're good at that somebody else maybe hasn't given them the opportunity to do. And I that makes me very happy. Well, that's something you hear a lot nowadays um, from women who are directors like Patty Jenkins is without more women in roles as directors, you won't see more women on screen doing the kinds of things that you want to see women doing. Yeah, you have to have that perspective of just knowing what it's like to exist as this other gender to be able to bring it to life. Otherwise, it's always going to be filtered through some fantasy version of what uh, being a woman's like. The allegations of sexual harassment now are in your world. Probably you hear about it every single day. Have you had to deal with that along your path? Yes. And I think... um, You know, people are like, oh, look at Hollywood or look at entertainment. It's like, actually, it's everything. Yeah, it's a cultural. It's we were born into it. Most people don't even know it's happening to them. Um, All I know is that I've genuinely feel like I've been fighting and struggling my whole life to be heard and to be taken seriously. And when when people sort of violate me getting people to believe that that happened and and then when nobody does then sort of blaming myself and wondering why I don't fit in or wondering why I'm hurting all the time or why no matter how hard I work I can't get ahead and then having these things come to light I think not only does it just raise everybody's consciousness that it's happening I'm it's it's kind of this huge relief like oh my God, I'm not insane. I've actually been living in just an upside down world where I've known what is true this whole time and nobody believed it. Um, And having other people now recognizing it, it kind of feels like like a level of freedom that I've never experienced before. Like I actually get to defend myself. And when people violate me, I get to say, hey, you're wrong. And you don't get to do that to me anymore. To me, I, I just, I never thought I would see any of this in my lifetime. I really didn't. I I thought it was something that we sort of had to figure out a way around, figure out how to, you know, teach our children to figure out a way around to try to protect ourselves in whatever way we possibly could to minimize whatever possible damage there was. I never, ever thought that the offenders and the predators would be held accountable. I mean, isn't that crazy that, yeah, we're taught how to... (laughs) Yeah, it's our responsibility to not get victimized, which is basically tacitly saying uh, it's okay that there are people that exist that that violate. And that's so strange. It's such a strange way to exist. What was your goal with Mr. Roosevelt? Um, My goal was to make a movie that I'm like, hey, I don't care if I make any money. I really have a story I want to tell and I want to bring people together and I want it to be funny and I want it to be make people feel good at the end um, or at least 
present a movie that I think some people will connect to. And I don't care what happens outside of that. Um, I don't know. That was ultimately my goal. Because I was like, I know that I know, I know that I have points, a point of view that other people can relate to. Make something you love that you feel really passionately about and you believe that other people will love it as well. Yeah, I don't, I love comedy. I like, I miss movies that weren't, I don't know. I miss movies that there, there might not be a reason for it to exist except for somebody wanted to make something that you wouldn't enjoy and be entertained by. Completely. My sister and I talk about this all the time. Yeah. Like why? Just give me some, some good, like comedy that I can enjoy. I don't need it to tell me anything. I don't need it to have a a specific reason. I just need it to be really enjoyable for two hours of my life. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's what's and and yeah, so it doesn't need to be a trending topic. It, that's that's what I was trying to get at. Exactly that. It doesn't need to hit some kind of zeitgeist box. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, I get why they're why that is and it's interesting to hear that you felt the pressure to do that because I sometimes even when I listen to stand-up comedians now or comedians, it feels like every joke is trying to somehow get into the trending topics to be discovered by more people. And that's that's how discovery works nowadays. But it just starts to feel like everything is so same because it's all going back to the same things in our zeitgeist. Yeah, it's exhausting. It's not that funny or entertaining. And um, I mean, it's actually at the end of the day, that's just marketing. People are just trying to use buzzwords in their art to be relevant and I just want to make things because I feel like there we're humans and they're human stories to tell and humans aren't walking around like with labels and I mean I guess we're training people to be identify with these labels and I was like actually aren't we supposed to be moving away from labels altogether like I don't know I just I don't like any of it <laughs> with Mr. Roosevelt what's been the toughest lesson uh, um I I'm trying to learn how to not uh, take things personally and even, you know, just as a a boss and as a leader, um, you know, if I really just want to help people and I like want to create like a community and a family and uh, it's much harder to do that than you would think it is. And I'm just a very sensitive person. And so uh, when people that I've like employed or that I'm working with don't really respect me or, um, I, I don't know. There's a part of me that's like still very wounded by all of that. And so the toughest lesson is like, actually, I, I I have to realize that that's that person. And if I'm continuing to hire people that don't respect me or if I don't respect myself, um, I'm never going to get to the place where I get to make the family. So that's been hard. And then reading, um, you know, people's perspective on the film and they make assumptions about it and and about you and what you're trying to do and and trying not to take that personally and also just not look at any of it and know that I need to operate from my own standards and level of integrity. And um, hopefully I can do that for the next project. There are so many opinions nowadays and the majority of opinions that get shared, unfortunately, on social media and elsewhere are not the positive ones. Yeah, it seems um, I think that the Internet is just extreme. So it's either that's true. This is our it's new very hero polarizing, yeah. or these are yeah. this is our new villain. And then the next season of whatever that is, it's like, well, actually, this is the villain. And here's our new hero. And <laughs> it's a, it's kind of insane. And it's a little bit sick. And I think we um, we might need a little bit more of a reality check. And I hope I hope to do this with the movie where people that seem like villains in the movie by the end, I think I hope 
you realize they're not bad. What's the worst advice you've been given along the way? Um, oh, my God. I mean, the the worst advice, and it's just advice that I just take the opposite, which I think is the best advice. But the worst advice is like, um, you really need to just do one thing. Just like focus on one thing and you need to really get clear on that. And um, and then that's how you'll make whatever you're going to make. And personally for me, um, every weird tangent I've ever taken has informed where I'm currently at. And I would never remove any of that. So um, I think one version is like a very literal way to look at life. And it's very much like a like climb to the top and i think maybe life is a little bit more of a get on a river and see where it goes noelle wells thank you so much for joining me on no limits thank you very much and now it's time for our no limits entrepreneur of the week and this week's entrepreneur of the week is tanya cronin she is co-founder and president of responder wipes Tanya is from Orlando, Florida. She is a 51-year-old single mother of three girls ages 29, 26, and 10. Yes, she says, you read that right, 29, 26, and 10-year-old girls. For the last 12 years, she was the chief administrative officer of Architects Design Group, which is a national firm specializing in the design of public safety facilities, including fire stations. And at the beginning of this year, she is now working for Narva & Associates, an emergency services management and consulting firm. And we're going to get to why she's doing that in just a minute here. But first off, why did she start her own business? Why did she start Responder Wipes? So since 2002, 61% of the line of duty deaths for career firefighters were from cancer. That's almost two thirds of the deaths of career firefighters from cancer. What's more is that the firefighters have a 14% greater chance of dying from cancer than the general population. So she looked at this risk. She started trying to understand what was the reason for it. Well, it's because of the increase in fire retardant materials in home construction and clothing, as well as the increased use of plastics and synthetics everywhere. So Tanya started thinking about this problem and she spoke to several fire chiefs. She asked around, were they aware of the risk? If so, what strategies were they using to minimize it? If firefighters wait the typical one to two hours before returning to the station to shower, those toxins will have already been absorbed into their bloodstream. So it's the firefighters who are taking care of the issue and decontaminating right on the scene that are doing the best for themselves. So four years ago, she sees the problem. She sees the issue. She starts looking around. She looks for a product that can help and she doesn't find anything. She doesn't see anything out there. So for the next 18 months, she turns the idea over in her head. She actually has a dream one night. She dreams she sees the word fire in big letters, and she realizes that this is a wake-up call. She needs to pursue this idea, so she starts researching everything about cleansing wipes, formulas, fabrics, manufacturing techniques, and she reaches out to one of the local fire chiefs, and they partner together. So they partner together, and they look around the market. They start testing out every single product they can find, literally going out to the store, buying it, giving it a test run, and they find a manufacturer they like. They work to develop a product that meets all of their needs, that makes all of them happy, and Responder Wipes happens, okay? So in August of 2016, they get their first inventory shipment. They launch the product at a fire rescue conference focusing on direct sales, and since then, they've expanded to include distributors throughout the U.S., Canada, even Chile. Huge success there just to even get it out of the gate like that. In 2017, their sales were $58,000. Okay, so what did she have in place before taking this giant leap? 
Well, she hasn't been able to completely quit a job. Remember I said earlier I'd explain that? So as a single parent, she says she's solely responsible for the financial well-being of her family. So rather than quit a job altogether, she's just moved to a new job that gives her a little more time and allows her to spend more time on responder wipes. She says if she could go back in time, the advice she would give to herself at the beginning is, if you feel passionate about something, act on it. She believes passion is our internal GPS telling us we are headed in the right direction. You also need to remember that if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. There are going to be ups and downs, so don't listen to the naysayers telling you maybe it's time to walk away. And thank goodness that Tanya hasn't walked away. Responder wipes are now helping firefighters throughout the country and around the world. So thank you for what you're doing, Tanya. You're a perfect example of a No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. We are proud to list you among our No Limits Entrepreneurs of the Week. Keep at it. Keep going. And very best wishes ahead. Tanya Cronin, thank you. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an entrepreneur, send me your nomination to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from all of you. I love reading your emails, so keep them coming. You can obviously also reach me on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use the hashtag No Limits. And before we go, a shout out to the fabulous team here who makes this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn. Our editor, Michelle Boncardo, our research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the rest of the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Thanks to all. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.